So I'm delighted to be in conversation with the wonderful Rachel Podger for this Wigmore Hall podcast. Um, Rachel, you live in Wales and your group, Brecon Baroque, is very much based around you forging a musical life for yourself there to kind of complement your international touring. How did you come to found the group and, and its activities there? Well, um, first of all, I'm the only one who lives in Brecon. <laughs> So even though it's called Brecon Baroque, you know, often I get the question, so you all live in Brecon, you all meet up once a week, you know, like, like they do when you go to school, kind of orchestra time kind of thing. It's not quite like that. That and would be actually, wishful thinking. I know. So it's quite an international outfit. Mm. So um, Alison lives in Scotland. She's just uh, moved to Skye, in fact. And um, Zabina lives in Bern in Switzerland. And Daniela lives in Basel. And... Uh, some of the others come from the UK, so it's, and Martin uh, lives in, in uh, uh, Poland, he's just moved to um, Krakow, hasn't he? So, um, yes, so we, we kind of gather for projects. The way it all started uh, was because I moved to Brecon with my family about 15 years ago, and there was a lovely oboist friend there called Sophia McKenna, and we'd worked together in the English concert for years, and I knew that she was living there, and she basically when she, she realised that we were there, she said, oh, great, because I've got this festival, can you get involved? And uh, she wanted us to do some kind of um, youth work and educational things. It was a kind of festival that was based around the architecture of the place, um, and there was some, some really funny things going on. There was a kind of sedan chair race that... <laughs> would take place through Brecon and you had to have a you had to stop and have a cream tea on the side and then get back on the chair and it's absolutely hilarious people cheering on the sides so we, we actually we didn't keep that on in the end but we we did consider <laughs> <laughs> I was quite keen on the cream tea um but um uh, and then there were talks and uh, and a few concerts and a ball as a baroque ball so the first year that I was involved and Tim my partner Tim Cronin, that is, who runs South Powers Youth Music, which is the, the local outfit for, for youngsters. Mm. Um, we, um, we kind of did it together, and Sophia organised the ball, and we organised the concerts. And I thought, gosh, OK, so I need to get my, all my best friends and all, my, all the people I love working with to do a really nice Tramer concert. So, of course, I asked all my, my besties. Um, and that became Brecon Baroque, really. And that was back in 2006. I reckon that was probably the first one yeah um, and then Sophia turned around and said hey look do you fancy just doing the whole thing next year <laughs> so he said yes sure that'd be great and it just felt so good to, to be in a small community away from London away from the kind of commuter belt just completely rural completely different place and to set up something like that. And I'd, of course, I've been traveling so much and going to different festivals all over the place, uh, in the UK a lot, of course, as well, but also in Europe and everywhere, um, and seen how festivals work and how it can really boost the local community and how the educational thing is so important. And I was just kind of, it was just the right time for me because I had little kids myself and I was kind of involved with other parents and schools and and so was Tim and, and so it just felt really good to be to get involved there because I also wanted to be at home a little bit more so we set up a committee and got people involved and so it just grew and has the audience grown with you yes the, the audience yes it really has and uh, 
you know, I'll, I'll tend to kind of go on about the festival before the encore of a concert, you know, wherever I am, you know, even if it's in Spain or in <laughs> Japan or Australia. So we do get people coming from far-flung places. There's, we've got a regular coming from Melbourne, <laughs> which is amazing, isn't it? But that thing of you drawing together the players who are really your friends, is that important to you as a musician that you have friendships with the people you work with? Absolutely, yes, very much so. It's the kind of thing that, um, you know, when you just get on with people, you speak the same language, or you understand them, and the humour is kind of, you can relate to each other in that way, on that kind of unspoken level. And um, it's the same with music. When you make music, um, it's just very easy to make music in that way because it's a, another form of language of communication. Have you ever <coughs> been kind of made music with somebody who you don't particularly get on with, but mm -hmm. you have that musical um, connection, or are they always related? If someone is is someone you can have good conversations with, they're also someone you can make good music with. It's a good question. Mostly, it does go hand in hand. Although, no, I have made music with with a few people where uh, yes where we just didn't speak that much just because the opportunity didn't really arise or I just didn't know them so well or I didn't really you know we didn't have that much language in common they didn't speak English or I didn't speak whatever it was Japanese or or whatever it might have been and but then when you make music something else takes over and then you don't you, you think oh actually we don't really need to talk about the weather <laughs> or, <laughs> or what tea we like or you know, which train we're catching. Um, so that has happened, actually. So, yeah, it's a very interesting point, that. But and by and large, they do, they do really they marry do up. They do pretty much go together, yeah. Sometimes it can feed into each other. Sometimes you, you get to know someone by making music, somehow, um, just because you haven't had the opportunity to chat. You know, just you're thrown in, into a group together and then you suddenly find yourself kind of getting on really well in the break over coffee and you think oh yeah oh, we've got so much in common and you know and you, you stay in touch and so that does happen that way around but because I had the privilege of actually forming an ensemble which I had been thinking about for some time because of course being involved with so many other formations of ensembles you know early on um, at college and right after college so with Palladian Ensemble with my um, you know really good friend Pamela Thorby um, and Bill Carter and Susanna Heinrich so we got together at college and then had a kind of really quite intense career together. Lots of traveling and touring and made lots of CDs for about 11 years or so. And then we all had kids <laughs> and then we all did other things. And so in a way, some doors opened for me. And of course, there, there was English concerts for me as well. And uh, at the same time as Palladium Ensemble Formation, there was Florilegium too. So I was involved with all of those kind of very, um, very formative, uh, well, in my formative years of, no, of finding out how to rehearse with people, you know, very different when you come out of college and you're all young professionals and you suddenly realise, oh, oh gosh, this is actually really serious. Oh, we're getting paid for this. So we, you know, this is a, this is a very different thing from being a student or playing at a wedding or, you know, doing those kind of things. Um, Yes, and then English Concert, which was another kind of step in a very different direction, was an amazing learning experience for me and um, brought me to a much, much wider public. I remember playing the Four Seasons for the first time with, with Trevor. I just saw him last night, actually, because uh, 
um, we, we were just involved in the Store Festival and it was Mark Della's last concert after being musical director for 45 years. So it was a very memorable concert yesterday. We, and uh, Breckenbrock did the Seasons program um, the night before, <coughs> which was very, very hot and sweaty. So summer felt completely right <laughs> and winter felt completely alien. <laughs> Trying to feel frozen and rigid in the first movement was really, we were all kind of, hmm, okay, should we try and embrace the, the not feeling hot idea? Um, it was very, very hot. Yes. When you, when you started <coughs> Breckenbrook and started working together, what did, you, what did you want to achieve other than, you know, bringing together your friends with all of that learning from working with Florilli Jim and the English concert and, as you say, learning to rehearse? I have the sense that at that point you were like, right, this is how I want to go about this. Mm -hmm. This is what I want to do. So what was the thing that you wanted to do? Hmm. Um, I think it was possibly just to be um, as clear as possible about your musical convictions and your instincts. So to be in touch as much as possible with those things. What gets in the way of being in touch with those things? So um, egos at times, kind of players' egos can get away, um, which is fine, but just needs managing. And we all have our own egos too, of course. You have to manage that one first. And then sometimes you have to manage other people's egos. So what I mean by that is just recognizing what is what in a rehearsal. So if someone brings up something, um, and that's what I mean about learning how to rehearse. Um, you know, afterwards, you kind of play the video back in your head of that rehearsal and you think, okay, so what did that have to do with? What was that about? What was that, that subject, that comment about that particular bit in the, in the piece? What was that about? Might not have been musical yeah. after all, but might yeah. have been because that person feels their voice isn't being heard or something Absolutely. like that. Things like that. So kind of personal insecurities coming into play, which is completely natural. We all do that. Very much so, and, and it happens all the time. And what you're learning in that situation is to recognize that and to channel it. So the people that I wanted to play with, kind of, I felt could recognize that, knew what that was about, and were kind of similar in age to me anyway, and we'd kind of known each other and played together a lot already. So those key people, of course, are Alison McGillivray, Roncello and, and Jane Rogers, and also Jan Spencer, who I did a lot with, who plays Viloni. I uh, did a lot with um, in Floral Legend, and he's one of those very kind of down-to-earth people, literally, because he has a small holding and has his, his hands in the earth a lot of the time. <laughs> um, very kind of balanced view, and just always knows how to ground something. You just feel very grounded, you know, which is really important when you're playing the top line. Um, and when you gather together a group of people who are, who are able to communicate in that way, to, if not let go of their egos to identify when that's happening and, and achieve that, I suppose, quite direct um, musical expression that you're describing. What opens up in the music of Bach and Vivaldi for you? Well, it is, in fact, expression and communication. So first of all, the communication with each other, of course. Well, actually, no, before, ahead of that is the communication with the text. So the, the relationship with yourself and the text, that's number one. So understanding, what am I looking at? What's this about? What's the character? What is, what is this composer saying? Um, you know, 
what, what do I need to convey? Because in the end, we are all channels, aren't we, for that? So that's where the ego thing is, is so important, to, to know where to put that. And actually, my, um, my wonderful violin teacher, who I'm still very much in touch with, I'm calling my violin guru, um, David Takeno, who was head of strings at the Guildhall School of Music when I was studying there in the late 90s, um, he used to say to me, I remember before my second year exam, and I did my, my Bach, uh, we, had, we all had to play a piece of Bach, just a movement, and I, I was not really meant to be playing on Brock violin, I remember, at the time, because I was meant to be concentrating on my modern violin, but I was already into the, the Brocky thing and very keen and, you know. Uh, so I was, con I, I was really, really wanting to do it on Brock violin, and so he said, yeah, yeah, whatever. And maybe I didn't even ask permission, I, I can't actually remember whether I did. But um, I was rather, well, I was nervous about it because I was the only one doing it on Brock and I didn't have a particularly good instrument and it sounded to my ear a little bit puny, you know, in comparison to everyone else, kind of full-bodied kind of, you know, uh, modern sound with vibrato and modern instrument, modern bow, and there I was with my little Brock violin and trying to be as articulate and uh, uh, portraying the phrasing as, as well as I could with my gut strings that kept going out of tune, all of those things. <laughs> Anyway, so, so I was, uh, obviously I related some of this to him in a lesson, and he said, okay, so, so the thing to do, and I, I remember this to this day, and I, I think about it most, before most concerts, is um, you just, you channel it, and you leave your life at the stage door. You just kind of leave your ego there. And then you can just be completely open, and in a way you have a break. You have a break from anything that you, should be remembering like you know whether you did the shopping or not or <laughs> who you're meant to call or get back to or any of those kind of daily you know things which is amazing if you actually realize that what a what a privilege to have that opportunity to leave that there and just to step into a composer's life and his way of thinking or her in fact to communicate with that first of all and then to come back to, to what's important um, with the group and portraying that so that you're communicating with the text, um, being the channel, and then you're communicating with the others on the stage, and then you're communicating that to the audience. And then that, that's, um, you know, that, for me that's a good concert, if that happens. And tell me about the texts that you are drawn to, because yes. particularly Bach and Vivaldi in your work with Breckenbrock feel like real, I don't know, either lodestars or <coughs> you know, foundation pieces for you. Mm. Let's start with Bach. Mm -hmm. What's so important about that music to you? Um, it's, it's just the clarity of the structure. Um, it's just like following a really, really good map. You know, everything's on there. You just have to follow it. You just need to learn what every sign means and the language of it and and um, understand, you, you're always learning, you're always hearing different things when you play, play Bach, whether it's solo music or um, ensemble music. Um, I had the most incredible experiences playing the Art of Fugue with, with Breckenbrock, with Johannes Panzolert and Janie, uh, Jane Rogers and Alison. Um, and every time we played together, 
it felt like a different experience, really, because it was a bit like a conversation, you know. You can't really repeat a conversation, can you? I know mm. this from trying to do takes for something like this. <laughs> when you're meant to, you know, for a, a, a pre-concert kind of little thing that you're meant to say, and then they say, oh, could you just say that again and just leave out this or add this? And I find that very hard to do when I'm speaking because it's so spontaneous, isn't it? Course, and once yeah. you kind of think about it, then you... Well, I, I get tongue-tied anyway. But um, with playing, that's different things. I'm very used to recording, and actually I, I adore recording. I adore the intensity. I, don't, I never want to stop. But anyway, so, um, so Bach, yes. So, so the conversation that occurred during those collaborations with the others was completely in the moment and in a way spontaneous, but always drawing, of course, back to the text. And so therefore you kept hearing different things. And that's what, for me, keeps it all, all alive. And especially something like the Art of Fugue, where each voice is, you know, there isn't really a top line and a bottom line. Of course, in register there, there, there is, but uh, each line is just as important. Um, so each voice is, is uh, just as equal. And yeah. when you're playing solo bar, yeah. violins and artisan mm. partitas, even the cello suites, mm -hmm. <laughs> rather than the violin, yes. what is that like? I mean, where is the conversation, as it were, within that music? Yes. So, so the violin piece is, of course, very different from the suites, the cello suites, um, on whatever instrument you might be playing on. Um, so in the violin pieces, the, the voices are, of course, very, very clearly defined, especially in the fugue, fugal writing. Um, so the challenge there, especially as a violinist, with quite a small instrument and quite a small kind of resonance body, really, is to bring out all of those different voices. And it's so fun to try and do that. It's it technically really hard to do, especially when you've got a, a big chord, but you're trying to bring out the tenor, for instance, so the, um, the D string. Um, which is the, the, the next to bottom string, of course, if you know your violin. Um, and, um, you know, you, you have to know your, the, your arm weight really well. You have to know how to get into the string and what the string will do, whether it'll like that treatment. Each string is slightly different. Um, I always uh, think about my strings as different children kind of four different children and they all need different treatment. They're all different ages, literally, because all the gut strings, are, they age in a different way because it's, of course, organic matter mm. being made of gut. And so if you change uh, the E string, which wears up because it's the thinnest, it wears out the quickest and also you, you spend a lot of time on that, um, then you normally have to, it's a bit like the, the E string and the A string, a bit like twins, they, they like to stay together. So. Um, you have to change the A string as well, otherwise the fifths are really, really out and it's really hard to manage. So they go in a room and play together. <laughs> <laughs> and then your D string is a difference. I've got a boy in my head, kind of toddler boy, just wants to go out and play out in the garden all the time and do kind of physical stuff. You've got to be really physical with your D string, really get into that string. It's kind of feisty and, and sometimes a little bit you know, doesn't not always willing to coax things out, and that's a great challenge, especially when you're playing a fugue. And the G string is the on my instrument is the only wound string, meaning wound with some kind of metal, has a gut core, but is wound with aluminium. Um, and that's a different kettle of fish. It's like a, a slightly more sophisticated child who who likes books. <laughs>
<laughs> so I've got funny ideas. But it kind no, of helps. It really... That's a really interesting way of, of thinking of the violin because you're you're in a very sort of dynamic relationship with its different aspects. Yes. Yeah. You know, and, and one in which you clearly, you know, as mother to those strings, yeah. take great care of them, but you also are allowing their their different characteristics and the frictions that arise around that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Friction, is, you, is, very, your, very well, yes, is your relationship with your violin one that includes friction? Oh, yes. <laughs> so it's not just a, this is my, you know, greatest friend, an extension of my soul. It's well, all smooth all and that. loving. Yeah, yeah, my baby when I'm not at home. Yeah. All of that. I used to say that when they were, when my, my, kid, my actual children were smaller. It's still very much my baby. Um, yeah, no, there's definite friction. I mean, especially when you're in a very hot, humid place, like actually just the other night. I mean, it was, we were just constantly tuning. Well, I was constantly tuning, so some of the other violinists too. Um, because, of course, they're just so affected by the environment, literally. Well, like we all are, but especially, mm -hmm. you know, being organic matter and susceptible to, to all of those changes in humidity and everything. Um, so, yeah, friction. And sometimes the violin, however well you know your instrument, sometimes it's just not... It just needs a bit more TLC. It just doesn't really feel like speaking much. So you just have to give it a bit of space and just like a. I, I, I do feel feel it's a person. <laughs> it's a slightly weird thing to do, but it's just how it is for me. We have this kind of relationship, um, and I, I yeah I adore that. I really love that. That it's always different every day. Yeah. So last night I put on two new strings. Um, the top two, the twins. In preparation for tonight, uh, tonight's concert tonight's, with Breckenbrock. Exactly, for the Wigmore. And um, yeah, so I, I had a little play this morning and uh, they, they seem to be behaving okay. I think they're getting on. <laughs> but back, back to, the, sorry, your original question about Bach. So yes, so seeing the strings as separate entities, I just find that really helpful because it kind of spreads things out. Because when you're playing, especially a, a smaller instrument, I guess, like the violin, and on cello, it's a different thing, even on the viola. Um, the, the strings are quite close together. It's all it's quite small, and and we're very used to playing tunes and soaring lines and the top line or the second line. You know, we never play bass lines, really. So the first thing I do when I revisit those pieces, which I do, luckily, quite often. Um, I play the bass line, just, just to get it into my body, into my system, and into my head. And so I'm also the bass player, I'm the cellist here, and I'm also the tenor, and I'm the alto, and the soprano, which comes very easily, soprano, because I sing soprano as well. So mm. That's very easy. Um, and so that you are cultivating those differences while you play, and then you get just so much more contrast coming out of the, the music. And so that is where the conversation is then between Absolutely. the different strings, yes. the different, you know, the soprano, the alto, the tenor, the bass that you're inhabiting as a yes. single player. Yes, and that's so fun, even though it's mm -hmm. just you there on the <laughs> stage. Because a, a lot of students will, you know, at times will say, oh gosh, so scary playing solo bach, and how am I going to do all of, all of that at once? And so we talk about this a lot. We talk about the, the different entities you are, the different people you are, and, and it becomes like a kind of role play.
Is there a similar kind of role play that happens with Vivaldi, for example, it, but on a, on a, I suppose, a different scale or spectrum that, that you are inhabiting characters oh, in so many yeah. of his pieces, mm. in perhaps a different way to Bach? Mm -hmm. Yes, no, it's huge, isn't it, with Vivaldi? And we're, it's just so amazing that he wrote these pieces. And of course, there's all good reason that they are so very popular. That, sorry, talking about the seasons here now. Um, the first four concertos of Opus 8. And um, as far as I know, those are the only concertos where he really instructs the player who to be. You know, so you might be a bird at one minute, tweeting away. <laughs> And then you might be the shepherd another minute, really worried about the impending storm. And the line, it's, it's all in there. It's, it's a real wail, you know, wailing away and um, looking up at the sky and thinking, what am I going to do with my sheep? And how far am I from the, you know, from the farm? And how am I going to get there in time? And you can, just, you can just hear it all going on. And then you can hear the, the drunkards very, very clearly in autumn. And of course, the... Uh, so, so much in there, but the, the important thing is that, that Vivaldi actually instructs you, you know, obviously in Italian, in the score. It's all in there. But there are different editions, so it's quite interesting that he apparently, before they were published in 1725, he must have written them quite a lot earlier, but without the stanzas. Uh, so that's quite interesting because there's been a lot of conversation and, and kind of pondering about who wrote these poems. So we're thinking now, latest research says that he probably wrote them himself and he might well have been inspired by four statues that are now in the Romanian embassy in Prague, used to belong to the court of Count Mordzin, Wenzel von Mordzin in Bohemia, Bohemian Count. Um, and uh, it, yes, so in his courtyard there were these four statues and, and Vivaldi obviously visited and spent time there. Um, and uh, one of the prefaces actually dedicates it to, to this count. So I, I haven't been, I really need to go and look at these statues. I'm intrigued, <laughs> must go. Um, so yes, so, so the instructions are very, very clear. And the poems, what we tend to do in concert is we get Jan, who's got a very good speaking voice and very, very good delivering um, poetry. He reads out um, the, the poem ahead of each season, which is really nice, actually. And uh, it feels a little bit like Jack and Nori. I don't know if you remember Jack. I remember Jack and Nori. <laughs> I, I loved Jack and Nori. You know, you can just look at the audience and, and they're all listening, like, you know, just really enjoying the fact that they get the context because it's very different hearing it isn't it than reading mm. it in, in your program mm. book um, and tell me about playing at Wigmore Hall I mean you're you have this residency yes. here yes yes what's the what's the hall like to play in not as a soloist but with an ensemble um oh it's just so giving it's just incredible I just adore it it's my favorite ever really and you know I have a wonderful kind of relationship with it really ever since playing her first I think the first concert was probably even with Palladians um, so a long time ago probably 30 years ago something like that um, or maybe not that much I pretend it's not that much um, and I just remember you know we were all we were very young we were kind of pretty nervous 
playing in such a prestigious venue. And the reception from the audience, I mean, that's, that, that is what keeps a, a hall alive, isn't it? It's the people, it's the, the living things within a building, isn't it, of course, that seem to kind of inspire the walls and radiate out. Um, you can feel it on the street. <laughs> so um, um, that's what really was overwhelming when, when we came out. I, I remember that, that feeling of warmth and it's, it's partly also the, the acoustics, so the, the applause really resonates in a really beautiful way. I don't know whether you've noticed that, but I always notice that, especially here. It doesn't happen in other halls. So you just feel kind of embraced. It's like a huge embrace. I just love it. It's, uh, and the sound with a group is gorgeous. That There's never a balance problem. It's always fine with the harpsichord because, of course, the shape of the, you know, the, the kind of rounded shape behind you. Um, it's just a complete joy, really. It's the mark of an egoless performer that the first thing you talked about in the hall was the audience and ah! their warmth and the building. <laughs> and then you finally come to how the hall makes you sound. Most people answer that by saying, oh, well, the wonderful thing about Wigmore Hall is I sound glorious in there. <laughs> oh, I suppose, well, there is that. Well, one, one hopes, one hopes. <laughs> <laughs> Rachel Podger, thank you so much for joining us at this Wigmore podcast. It's thank been a real you. delight. <laughs> thank you.